I'd love to just welcome everyone to tonight's CCL training, a weekly webinar program of Citizens Climate Lobby that provides CCL supporters with access to in-depth learning opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight's topic is going to be on how to create a clean and stable electric grid, part one, focusing on wind and solar power, transmission, energy storage, and demand response. We're going to join CCL's research team for a two-part training. This is part one of two that will provide an overview of what kinds of energy and infrastructure will be needed for a clean and stable energy electric grid and the main technologies that are most likely to get us there. Our main speaker tonight is the amazing Dana Nucitelli, CCL's research coordinator, who is going to be walking us through the overview. Dana is an author of 10 peer-reviewed climate science papers, author of Climatology versus Pseudoscience, a recent SEAL Award winner as well, the wonderful Environmental Journalism Award that uh, Dana was honored to uh, have been awarded that we're so proud of him for. And he's also gonna be using a lot of the background research and work that our other amazing research coordinator, Jonathan Marshall has put together. Jonathan is a journalist, scholar, and book author with economics training from Stanford University and a master's degree in American history from Cornell. Jonathan has been a wonderful staple of our research team as well. So he'll be available for our Q&A section, especially. If we've done our job well though tonight, we're gonna to walk away all of us with the following three learning goals. We're gonna have the chance to review what kinds of energy and infrastructure will be needed for a clean and stable energy electric grid. We'll highlight the challenges behind further adoption of these energy sources and infrastructure projects. And we'll start to understand how complementary solutions can interact and help really support grid reliability. So with that, I will pass it to you, Dana, and thank you all so much for being here. The floor is yours. Thanks, Brett, uh, for the intro. So this is our agenda for tonight. We're gonna to start talking about uh, the background, why we created this resource for a stable, clean electric grid, and then go into the backgrounds of each of the technologies that we're tackling tonight, and their roles in creating a stable, clean electric grid, how they're gonna to contribute to that, uh, the issues which with each of the technologies, uh, how much of them we're going to need to get to a net zero clean electric grid. And then we're going to tackle a few frequently asked questions and then do the Q&A that you can use the Q&A button to ask questions for. Let's get to the background of the new resource. This training page we've created are actually a series of training pages. Um, so the idea is that we know that experts are projecting that cheap wind and solar energy are going to supply most of our clean energy in the future. Uh, because we're trying to get to net zero emissions, we're trying to get a clean electric grid, and wind and solar are becoming super, super cheap. But they can't cost effectively provide 100% of our clean electricity because they're intermittent in nature. Uh, and so like there are proposals to get 100% uh, electricity from wind, water, and solar from Mark Jacob at Stanford, for example. But to do that, you have to build out lots and lots of extra wind and solar, and so that becomes very expensive. And so there are potentially better ways to do it. Um, so another complication is that we're electrifying a whole bunch of, sec of new sectors like transportation, we're getting a lot more electric cars and buildings, we're getting all these heat pumps and electric stoves and things like that. So we're getting an increased demand for electricity. And so we have to meet that uh, increased demand with clean electricity as well. And so then the question is, how do we do all that and supply all the clean power we need while maintaining a stable grid that doesn't have 
blackouts and things like that. So that's why we created this resource to kind of address that question and uh, do some trainings on it. So on the right here, that's what our training page looks like. It's called how to create a stable, stable clean electric grid. Um, so it covers these topics uh, on the left here, uh, the wind and solar power being the backbone of the clean electric grid, long distance transmission being important, energy storage, demand response. Those are the ones we're gonna talk about tonight. And then on top of that, we've got uh, pages on firm clean generation sources, hydropower, geothermal, nuclear, and carbon capture and storage. Those we're gonna talk about in two weeks in part two on uh, the 20th. So stay tuned for that one. But tonight we're gonna talk about those top five. So let's do a little background on each, starting with wind power. Uh, of course, we know wind turbines, they got those propeller blades that get turned when the wind blows through uh, and they spin a generator that creates electricity. And we've been doing this for a long time. The first wind turbine to generate electricity was built in 1887. So it's very well established technology, but of course improving over time as the technology improves. Uh, and most of our wind turbines have been on land because that's where we live. Uh, that's where we're most comfortable building things. But offshore wind is really starting to grow pretty quickly now uh, because there's a lot of speed and energy in those offshore winds. And so we're trying to harness those and take advantage of that really good offshore wind resource. So to illustrate that, I've got this nice map uh, from the National Renewable Energy Labs. Uh, so basically, you can see the bluer it is, the stronger the wind resources uh, in that area. So you can see in the middle of the country, there's quite a lot of nice wind resources. Sometimes that's referred to as the Saudi Arabia of wind. Um, so there's a lot of potential there. And then, of course, you can see offshore, there's very, very dark blue because there's very strong winds offshore. So again, that's why we are very interested in deploying some offshore wind resources um, because of that great potential, even though it's kind of more technically difficult to do. And then moving on to solar, solar power. Uh, so when you have a solar, solar photovoltaic cell that uses a semiconductor, uh, usually silicon, which when a photon sunlight hits it, that converts it to electricity using the photovoltaic effect. Uh, those are either, you can call them distributed solar, which is when the solar panels are distributed on places like rooftops or parking lots. Or you can have uh, utility scale solar, which are these big solar farms that are very, very large arrays of solar panels. Uh, so that's the difference between distributed and utility scale solar. And then there's also concentrated solar thermal uh, that you may have seen pictures of. It's like all the, the mirrors in this big array pointing, directing sunlight to a big uh, power tower to heat up some kind of fluid and, uh, you, and store heat that way to create uh, electricity but that is a more expensive way to do it. It's less common. So we're gonna focus on solar photovoltaic in our resource and in this training. Uh, here's a similar map for solar resources in the United States. Uh, redder is a greater solar potential resource. So you can see lots in the Southwestern United States, also in the Southeast, uh, Southern states, especially Florida, California, Arizona, Lots and lots of solar potential, but even in areas where it's kind of orange or yellow, where you can still get lots of good energy potential from uh, solar panels, but it's most effective in those southwest and southeast regions. 
And next, we're going to talk about electric transmission, uh, which that's those power lines you see that transport electrical energy from where the power is produced, from wherever the power plant is, to where it's used, uh, population centers where we need our electricity. That is the transportation, especially over long distances, is done at high voltages because that's more efficient. You have uh, less losses as you're doing transportation of electricity at high voltages, then use transformers to kind of boost the voltage uh, from the power plant to the long distance transmission line and then transformers boost it back down uh, to lower voltages when it gets to our cities so that that's way that way we can use like 120 or 240 volts uh, power outlets in our homes for example. The transmission lines are generally made of aluminum because that is a nice common cheap uh, light and uh, effective uh, material to transport electricity. Uh, sometimes they're reinforced with steel. They're usually in overhead lines, uh, but sometimes we bury them underground and we'll tackle that a little bit in our FAQs later. Then we've got energy storage, uh, which is a really good way to address the intermittency of renewable sources because you just if you have extra solar during the daytime for example then you put it in a storage system and then you can use it a few hours later when the sun goes down uh, so that's a good complement to solar especially and also to wind uh, in california especially uh, where i am uh, we get something like 20 percent of our electricity from solar power already and so that's becoming an issue because like you know, again, you have lots of sunlight in the daytime and then the sun goes down and that kind of goes away. And so uh, most of the new solar projects that have been proposed in California, especially in a lot of the Western United States have already been proposed to include battery storage with them. But uh, battery storage isn't the only way to store energy. Uh, that is one often uh, in lithium ion batteries, but there's also, uh, for example, pumped hydro, which is when you take advantage of gravitational uh, potential energy and you pump uh, water uphill and then you let it run downhill and run a generator. Uh, you can also use heat, thermal reservoirs, uh, store the heat in like molten salt or rocks and then use that heat uh, when you need it. Uh, you can do hydrogen, which the greenest way to do that is to get water and electrolyzer and split the water molecule. And then you get the hydrogen and you use that in like a fuel cell, for example or an even simpler gravity storage, you just raise and lower heavy blocks. Uh, or you can also do compressed air, uh, compress the air in some kind of reservoir and then release it to uh, spin a turbine. So lots of different ways to do energy storage. Uh, and then demand response is another interesting approach, which is basically getting customers to change their electricity demand to meet when you have a better electricity supply. Uh, there are already 11 million residential customers in the United States who participate in a demand response system. And there are a few different forms of this. There's just like utilities asking their customers, can you please use less electricity right now because we're running up against a potential shortage. Uh, that's what California has done in their flex alerts, uh, basically saying like, it's very hot. A lot of people are needing to run their AC, maybe run a little bit of less, a little bit less if you can right now. Um, there's also time of use rate incentive programs, basically saying like during the daytime, we have lots of solar, so we have lots of electricity available. So we're going to make the rates low. And then as the sun goes down, the demand goes up and the solar uh, supply goes down. So we're going to make the rates higher to get, to get people an incentive to use electricity when it's most available. 
And similarly, uh, we can pay these big energy drawers in the industrial and commercial and agricultural sectors uh, to use electricity or to re reduce their demand uh, for electricity when we potentially need them to. So there's kind of financial incentives there. So let's look at the role of each of these in our, our clean electric grid. Uh, so again, wind and solar farms are gonna be really important. Once they are installed, they produce basically no climate pollution other than the energy needed to maintain them and eventually uh, dispose of them. Uh, they are again, super cheap. The price of wind turbines has decreased about 50% over the past decade and solar panels about 85% over the past decade. So they are now the cheapest sources of new power, which is awesome. We're gonna be deploying lots of them because of that. And in fact, in 2021, uh, wind and solar were 77% of the new capacity added to the US power grid. And we had another big chunk from a little chunk from battery storage as well. And so right now they are supplying about 14% of total US electricity per year. So you can see what we've been adding to the electric grid in the US over the past two decades. Uh, the gray there is natural gas. So you can see in the 2000s, we we're adding lots and lots of natural gas, but then the green bar starts to grow, that's wind. Uh, around you know, 2006 or so, we start to get significant additions of wind. And then around 2013 or so, we start to get significant additions of solar as solar panels but start to become cheaper and cheaper. And then the past few years, we started to get uh, larger chunks of the blue, which is battery storage, is starting to become more cost effective. And so actually the past three years, uh, these renewable sources have been 84% of the new additions to US electricity capacity. Uh, you can see this coming year 2023, there's a lot of planned solar and quite a bit of uh, battery storage and a chunk of wind expected to come online. So that kind of renewable, this new renewable uh, dominance of our added electricity capacity is expected to continue and actually to increase. And so if we look at where we're at, I uh, put this couple pie charts together. This is 2022 where our electricity generation is coming from about 60% from fossil fuels, 40% natural gas, 20% from coal in the United States. And then the other 40% is uh, clean energy sources, 18% nuclear, 11% wind, 6% hydro, and 3% solar, and then uh, a little bit of, of biomass and geothermal. And then in 2050, we're trying to get to a net zero grid. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that, different potential mixes. This is one a potential mix from one scenario in uh, this nice report that Princeton put out, the Princeton Net Zero uh, report. So in that scenario, they had 55% of our electricity supplied by wind, 30% by solar, 5% uh, by, um, by natural gas with carbon capture, 5% from nuclear, 3% from hydro, and then a little biomass and geothermal. Um, I kind of hope in geothermal might play a bigger role than that because there's a lot of interest in that and That'll be interesting. But again, this is just one possible scenario out of like an infinite potential possibility of scenarios. So, uh, but you can see renewables are expected to be a much, much bigger chunk of our grid in 2050 in the coming decades. So let's look at the roles these other technologies uh, and approaches are gonna play. Uh, so transmission lines are, of course, important because when we, when we uh, build these utility scale uh, solar and wind farms, 
those are going to be out in rural areas and we have to get that electricity they generate to population centers so you need transmission lines to connect those so that's really important and also interconnecting different regions is really important because uh, for one thing that stabilizes the grid because then the regions can share electricity between each other and so if one region happens to at a given time not be very sunny and not be very windy they can potentially get some electricity from another region uh, nearby that has some more resources available at that time. Um, also, that reduces new generation needs, so you don't have to build as much wind and solar if you're sharing it between different regions that are further away. And then energy storage uh, is important for making uh, our utilization of renewables better, because right now in places like California where we have lots of solar, during the daytime, we can't necessarily use all that solar energy, and so some of it just gets wasted, it gets curtailed. And if we had more battery or more energy storage, then we could take that extra solar energy, put it in the storage, and then use it later in the day when we have more demand. And so storage is really useful for improving that utilization rate. Uh, demand response can have similar beneficial effects. Uh, for one thing, it reduces our need for natural gas peaker plants, because again, when we don't have enough uh, renewable energy supply, then you often turn on these natural gas peaker plants. And so then you're using more natural gas, which resulting in more greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but so if you can instead reduce your demand during those peak times, you don't have to turn on as much natural gas. And it can also allow for a better renewable utilization if you increase your demand during those daytime hours or when it's windy, whenever you have those extra renewables, tell people, give them the incentive to use electricity more at that point, like charge their EVs at that time, for example, then you get better uh, utilization rate of your renewables as well from demand response. So there are of course issues with any technology that cause challenges uh, with wind and solar. The big one is of course intermittency. It's not always equally windy all the time. It's not always a sunny all the time. So they're not consistent fuel sources. So the solutions are all these uh, complementary technologies I was just talking about, energy storage, firm power sources, transmission uh, interconnections, and uh, demand response can help with that intermittency. Another challenge is that they tend to have uh, re relatively large land use footprints for these big wind and solar farms, um, especially if you're including all the land between them. Um, but the land between the turbines and the solar panels can be used potentially for other purposes, for you know, a secondary purpose. So for example, you can put uh, wind turbines and solar farms, our solar panels on a farm and have animals grazing between them or be growing crops between them or underneath the solar panels if you have uh, crops that are uh, thrive in shady conditions. And so that can actually create supplemental income, uh, a reliable income for farmers and can have kind of a win-win beneficial effect by creating a, a reliable income source uh, for the farms and ranchers as well. But they will require a fair amount of land area. Um, so here, this is one scenario again from that Princeton Net Zero report, looking at the land area in blue that we will need in one, in one scenario to get to net zero uh, for wind farms, the amount of land for wind farms, and in yellow is the amount of area needed for solar farms in this scenario. And so you can see it's a pretty big area. Although the wind farms, in this case, we're looking at the land between the, the uh, wind turbines and also like the, uh, the land from which you can just, the visual footprint from which you can see the wind turbine. So it's kind of exaggerating it a little bit. That little blue box in Illinois there, that is the actual physical footprint 
of the wind turbine. So it's a very big difference between like the physical footprint and like the overall visual footprint of the wind turbines. Um, but nevertheless, it's, you know, it's a, a fair amount of land use that you have to take into consideration. But again, if you do things like coupling them with agricultural uh, land, then that can really reduce the land needed because you're kind of dual purposing our land that way. So we also have a growing not in my backyard NIMBY sentiment about wind and solar uh, farms. Between 2015 and 2022, on average, local governments rejected almost 50 wind projects per year. And then that's kind of grown as solar projects have grown as well. Last year in 2022, there were 80 solar projects rejected by local governments. So there's this growing uh, local opposition. Mostly that's kind of based on misinformation that's often being spread via Facebook for people, you know, people thinking that wind turbines are going to like cause cancer or catch fire or something. And solar panels are going to like break and leach metals and contaminate the groundwater, which has never actually happened. But there are these, you know, this is misinformation out there that gets spread and then creates this local opposition in many cases. There are some kind of legitimate concerns, again, associated with land use. People like don't want to see wind turbines or solar panels. And so there's kind of a combination of like kind of legitimate reasons and kind of misinformation. So the best way to counter that is to get local support for these clean energy projects going. So when you have like local uh, council meetings and things, you know, debating these projects to have not just people in opposition to them here having their voices heard, but also the people who support them having their voices heard. Another concern with solar panels is that China is involved in more than 80% of the component manufacturing for solar panels. Uh, and China, of course, has various issues like human rights issues and things like that. And they're not a great ally to us. And so we, you know, a lot of times we don't want to rely on China for all of our solar panel component manufacturing. And so one solution to that is to beef up our domestic uh, solar uh, supply chain, which the Inflation Reduction Act did quite a bit to create incentives for uh, us to uh, do more solar panel uh, manufacturing in the United States. And so we're kind of working on that, making progress there. So for transmission, uh, just building the transmission lines is the big challenge. Um, it takes on average a decade to build a new transmission line right now in the United States. That's because of a slow permitting process, which we're trying to address in our clean energy permitting reform policy area. Uh, also, also cost allocation, nobody wants to actually pay for the transmission lines. And so that's another thing we might, we might address in permitting reform, trying to make it so that uh, people pay proportional to their benefits from the transmission lines. And of course, NIMBYism, people tend to think transmission lines are ugly and don't want them uh, in their communities because they don't like the looks of them and things like that. Uh, they also do have environmental impacts as any construction projects do. They're going to lo uh, impact local plant and animal species and potentially have wildfire uh, risks, especially in places like California, where we are drought and wildfire prone and sometimes downed power lines spark wildfires. Um, so I'll talk about that a little more in the FAQs. For energy storage, uh, the main challenges are cost because like the price of batteries has come down quite a bit, but they're still relatively expensive. Um, for pumped hydro, there's only so many 
suitable locations to build a reservoir because you have to pump the water up and down. And so you need reservoirs to do that. And so there's only so many suitable locations for that. Um, Long-term storage, there we just haven't really needed any yet. And so the technologies aren't yet proven uh, that they can work and be cost effective. So there are lots of really interesting uh, ideas and um, companies, startups that have some interesting long-term storage technologies. So we just have to, I think it'll just be a, a matter of time before they prove themselves, but they haven't yet. And then hydrogen uh, requires infrastructure, it needs pipelines, it needs storage systems. Uh, those things are complicated and expensive, so that's a challenge for hydrogen too. And then demand response, uh, its main challenge is that it's kind of a, tends to be kind of a, a little bit of a complex policy. Uh, as a result, only 7% of Americans take advantage of time of use rate programs available to them um, because you know maybe they don't know this, the time of rate program is available, maybe it's too complicated, they don't want to worry about it. Uh, also, often the financial incentives aren't very strong. And so if you want to, people to take advantage of them, maybe make the financial incentives a little bit stronger. So, and maybe a little bit better education about it would work too. So let's look at how much of each of these technologies we'll need to get to our stable, clean electric grid. Uh, for wind, uh, the Princeton Net Zero report estimates we're going to need six to 28 times more uh, wind power in 2050 than we do today. Uh, there's a large range there because we don't know what, what the mix of these different technologies is going to be. There's a lot of different potential scenarios. And so bottom line is we're going to need a whole lot more wind. A uh, very similar story with solar. We're going to need 9 to 39 times more solar in 2050 than we have today. Uh, we'll need between two and five times more transmission than in 2050 than we do today. And even just by 2030, uh, we've learned that to realize the em potential emissions reductions from the Inflation Reduction Act, we'll need to more than double the recent construction rate, the build-out rate of our transmission lines between now and 2030. So we need to really speed that up fast and then keep building transmission at a better rate uh, up to 2050. Energy storage, we need up to 176 times more uh, in 2030 than we do today. I mean, there's not a whole lot today, and so that sounds like a big number, but we're starting from a low point. Um, so there's a lot of potential there for storage, energy storage, and for demand response, we're going to need up to eight times more in 2035 than we do today. Again, there's not a whole ton today, so there's a lot of potential to grow that as well. Uh, I'm going to show a couple of maps here from that Princeton Net Zero report looking at uh, basically a visual uh, representation of how much more wind and solar and transmission we're going to need by 2050. So this is how much we have today. Uh, the gray kind of shows our transmission lines. Those blue dots show our relatively large wind projects. And then uh, the orange, which is hard to see on here because uh, solar projects tend to be relatively small footprints. Uh, but the orange is going to show our utility scale solar projects. That's what it looks like today. And, and this is what it's going to look like in 2050 in one possible scenario. So you can see a pretty radical difference, lots and lots of blue from lots and lots of wind farms, again, especially in that middle part of the country where it's very windy and off the coast with your offshore wind, uh, lots of really big transmission lines connecting those different regions, especially in the middle of the country to population centers. Uh, you can kind of see some orange dots in the southeast and in kind of the southwest in California, uh, places where there's lots of good potential for big solar farms. So it's a very big change that we're going to be seeing over the next 25 years or so 
uh, with lots of these wind and solar and transmission projects hopefully successfully built. So let's tackle a few frequently asked questions uh, that are addressed on our training resource, and then we'll go into your guys' questions. So one question we often get is like, what about mining and the environmental and climate impact associated with mining for the minerals needed for these technologies? So these processes do uh, disturb ecosystems. They do create carbon emissions, like they're not non-zero effects. But uh, an important point to bear in mind is that mining and manufacturing processes for creating a wind turbine or a solar panel or a battery happen once. And then you get them built, you get them installed, and then the wind turbine runs on wind. The solar panel is fueled by sunshine. Uh, the battery gets charged up by an increasing amount of those clean uh, energy sources. And then they're done. Like they're not, you know, you, your manufacturing and mining process for that particular uh, product is done. Conversely, fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel technologies, like you constantly have to drill and extract and refine and transport and then ultimately burn that fossil fuel uh, energy product. And then you, you burned it, so then you have to go drill and extract and refine and burn some more of it. And it never ends like that because you're burning that fuel, like you constantly have to extract more of it from the earth. And so it's a much, much bigger uh, environmental and climate impact just by its nature that you're burning the fuel instead of just creating a product that's going to use what nature provides as a fuel. Uh, another point is that uh, most of the minerals from a solar panel or a wind turbine or a battery can be recycled and we're constantly getting better at our recycling processes. So as you know, we get more and more of these um, solar panels and wind turbines and batteries reaching the end of their life, then there's more demand for recycling and our recycling processes are going to improve. And so then you take those minerals, you recycle them, you create a new solar panel or wind turbine or battery, and you don't have to mine as much of the new products, the new minerals as you did the first time. And then we're also constantly having new advancements to reduce the environmental impacts of these technologies. Uh, one example being that we were concerned about cobalt uh, in uh, lithium ion batteries because most of our cobalt comes from regions that uh, have some human rights and environmental issues like uh, child labor and things like that. And so now we're starting to see more batteries uh, that don't use cobalt anymore. So kind of as we see these problems, we improve the technologies or find a new technology that addresses them. And we're constantly kind of reducing those environmental impacts. Uh, another one we hear all the time about wind turbines is that they kill birds and whales. And so that's not a good thing. Uh, which is certainly true, um, but it's important to keep it in perspective. Uh, wind turbines are estimated to kill about 0.04% as many birds in the United States per year as cats do, and a small fraction of the number that are killed by in collisions with buildings, uh, windows, and things like that. So, like, we don't want to kill any birds, but it's important to keep in perspective that, like, there are other of factors that kill a lot more birds. And we're researching ways to reduce the number of birds killed by wind turbines all the time. For example, uh, looking at areas where lots of birds uh, migrate through and not putting wind turbines in those areas. Uh, it also looks like uh, painting one of the wind turbine blades black uh, helps uh, birds avoid them more easily. And so we're looking for ways to reduce that number. 
Uh, as for whale deaths, there has been an increase in whale deaths recently on the East Coast, and people were like, oh, well, we're building offshore winds, and maybe those are connected, which is um, not a very scientific way of, of, uh, of linking those uh, deaths. Um, and some autopsy scientists have done onto autopsies of the whale, uh, the dead whales that they found, and have found no evidence that those deaths have been linked to offshore wind. It looks more likely that the, because the waters are warming, because of global warming, that is bringing the whales prey closer to the shore, which is bringing the whales closer to the shore, which is then causing more collisions with uh, people's boats near the shore and, that, and things like that that result in whale deaths. So that seems like a much more likely and evidence-based explanation than just saying, oh, there's more wind, so it must be, that must be the problem. Uh, another question we get is like, how much can distributed solar uh, solve this problem of our needed transmission? Because if you put solar panels on roofs and in parking lots, you know, at buildings where that's where the electricity is needed, then you don't need so much transmission lines. Uh, that is true. It is a nice solution. Uh, the challenge is that uh, this distributed solar on rooftops and parking lots and things like that is significantly more expensive than utility scale solar because of most of the economies of scale, as you're not installing as many solar panels in one place. And so just hasn't, isn't as cost effective. Uh, as a result, uh, the Princeton Net Zero report estimates that in 2050, we'll get something like 33% of electricity from utility scale solar versus something like 5% from distributed solar. Um, so yet yeah, distributed solar is good. It does reduce the need for transmission lines, but you know, like we need to do both. Like, there's not enough. Like, trans distributed solar is not going to like eliminate our need for transmission lines. We're still going to need this utility scale solar farms, and then we're going to need transmission lines that connect them to the grid and to population centers. And then I talked about undergrounding uh, transmission lines, and another potential solution is to put transmission lines along existing rights of way, like highways, for example. So those do have benefits, uh, putting um, transmission lines underground, like it avoids wildfires, like they're not gonna like fall down and spark a wildfire. They're less susceptible to weather damage. Uh, there's less uh, nimbyism because people can't see the lines when they're underground, so there's less local opposition. The main downside is that it is more expensive, up to 10 times more expensive to underground uh, power line than to build uh, these transmission towers and above ground power lines. Uh, it's also slower to install, repair, and upgrade because you have to like dig these trenches and do underground vaults and things like that, and then dig them up again if you want to repair them or upgrade them, uh, so they're less accessible, and so it's kind of slower and more expensive. Uh, and then using rights-of-way like highways that can bypass local opposition because the right-of-way is already there, and so you can more easily get a permit to uh, install the transmission line along these rights-of-way. Uh, one challenge is that there's not a lot of space next to freeways, and so you generally have to, again, underground uh, the transmission line because there's not a lot of space for these towers. And again, that's generally much or significantly more expensive in most cases. And uh, in some, a lot of localities, there's like, like you have to get, there's, the law doesn't say like you can do underground transmission lines, like you have to change the law to allow that. Uh, which is something you could potentially do, but it's just an extra uh, roadblock in the way is that you have to actually get the local government to allow that right away to be used for an underground transmission line in some cases. 
And then another question we get is what about EV battery storage? Because we're getting a, an increasing number of EVs. They're really starting to explode. We're up to 7% of new sale, new car sales in the US being EVs. And that number is growing very fast. And then we're getting a lot of these new vehicle to grid applications, which is when uh, the electric grid can charge the battery in the electric car. And then the electric car can send that batteries to store electricity back to the house and back to the grid uh, in bi-directional charging. And uh, on top of that, we're also getting more EV batteries reaching the end of their life, but the end of their life, they still have significant capacity, like something like potentially 80% capacity uh, in these old batteries. And so you don't want to just waste that battery capacity. So what you can do is kind of collect them and put them together. And then you have potentially some battery storage that you can connect to the grid and connect to like a solar facility, for example. And so there are estimates that that uh, supply of old used EV batteries could grow 10 times by 2030 as more and more EVs are reached their end of their lifetime or the batteries that reach the end of their lifetime. And so if you combine those two, the vehicle to grid charging and the uh, used EV batteries, uh, a recent study found that those could meet all utility short-term storage needs in the United States by 2030 if you kind of maximally, maximally uh, and most efficiently use all those battery uh, supply technologies. And then on top of that, we've got this demand response connection by, you know, if you tell people like we have lots of solar power available in the daytime, so please, you know, I'll give you some incentives to charge your EVs during the daytime, maybe it'll give you lower rates and things like that. And then you can also connect the demand response uh, issue to their to that demand response uh, approach to EVs and uh, improve things that way. So there's kind of a lot of different ways that EVs can potentially uh, assist in making our clean uh, electric grid more stable. So that's got a lot of potential in the coming years. So that's kind of all of our uh, technology we're going to talk about today in a nutshell. So basically, we're going to have this diversity of solutions. If we want to get to a stable, clean electric grid, we're going to need wind and solar. We're also going to need battery storage, transmission, and demand response, and the clean, firm sources that we're going to talk about in two weeks in part two. And thanks to all these techno technological advances with wind turbines and solar panels and batteries really dropping in price really fast, uh, it's probably going to be actually a cheaper grid than the current grid. We're going to have hopefully cheap, cheaper electricity costs as a result. And we're going to reduce plant pollution. We're going to reduce air pollution. So people are going to be healthier. They're going to be happier. And it's going to be awesome. So it's just a matter of deploying these solutions to get there. You got it. Yes. Thank you so much, Dina. If we didn't get to yours tonight, I have put a link in the chat to Nerd Corner. That is where it seems like Jonathan and Dana are, they're always there. Um, you can find them there at any hour of the day. Uh, they'd love to hang out with you after tonight if you just haven't been able to have yours answered in the depth that it has. We know that we will see you again. There is a part two in two Thursdays. And for now, I'm just going to unmute all lines so that we can join in a raucous round of applause for Dana and Jonathan and all of you really for your advocacy and involvement on this. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Stay safe and thank you again for being here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org 
To find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.